Welcome back, warriors. Kwei Tansei Sego Anibuju. My name is Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties, and land back to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So, if you're interested in hearing from native peoples blazing trails and repping their nations all over Turtle Island, talk about all the ways in which they have come to where they are, like our upcoming guest, then this is the podcast for you. And today's podcast is literally one of a kind. I feel like I've won an award or something that I actually get to have this guest on. She is more than one of a kind. Connie Walker is the Pulitzer Prize winner for her podcast. So stay tuned. This is going to be such a good podcast. Welcome back. I am so excited. You are joining the Warrior Life podcast, and today's show is just going to be phenomenal for me and for everybody who's listening. We have with us the Native Pulitzer Prize winner, Connie Walker. I mean, we all knew about her before because she's just doing like amazing things, but now she's won the Pulitzer Prize and the Peabody Prize. It's it's beyond incredible. She is just representing us so well. I was just talking to her saying she's literally representing everybody, all of the people who aren't here anymore, our ancestors, all the Native communities all over Canada, even I'd say the United States, Turtle Island. She's representing Canada. Spotify, all of these great <laughs> outlets for her work. And, and I'm really honored that she's here today because she is literally someone that I have looked up to for a long time. But before I just go on and on and fangirl, Connie, welcome to the Warrior Life podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I'm really happy to be here with you. I can't believe you even have time. I mean, there must be red <laughs> carpets and flashing lights, all of the media people here listening and wanting to talk to you. No, I was just I was just busy doing my recycling right before this. <laughs> <laughs> See, Pulitzer Prize winners have to do recycling too. Oh, well, that's awesome. Okay, so Connie, I have a million questions for you. I'll try to get through them, but first, perhaps you could just introduce yourself and where you're from in the way that you like to. Sure. Um, so my name is Connie Walker. I am Cree from Saskatchewan. I was born and raised in my community uh, from the Okanese First Nation um, in Treaty 4 territory, but I also, my dad is from the Beardies and Okamasas First Nation. I lived there for a bit when I was a kid as well, um, and that's in Treaty 6 territory. Oh, they must be just so happy. I mean, I can't even wait for this summer's powwows. Everyone's going to be like, look at Connie. She's just repping us all over the place. One of the things people always want to know when I have guests on this podcast is what was some of their life journey? How did they get to where they are? And my question always is, did you know from the time you were a little girl that you wanted to be a journalist or in media somehow? I don't, I don't think that I, I had articulated that as a kid, really. Like, I remember actually, I was thinking back when, um, you know, like growing up in my community, like I didn't, we didn't even have obviously cable TV, we had a couple channels, but I do remember watching that old CTV show ENG. And I was like, is that where like some of this was started, like ENG and Murphy Brown. Um, but I, the, the real, the first time I actually did think about becoming a journalist was when I was in high school. And I don't know, Pam, if you remember um, Pamela George, but she was a, a, a Soto woman who was killed in Saskatchewan. Um, and she was from Sacame, which is just across kind of the valley, you know, um, from where I grew up. And we would go to Sacame Powell when I was a kid. Um, and when I was in grade 11, I think the, the trial was happening of the two men who were charged in Pamela's death. And I remember, like, I don't, I'm sure, like, I didn't have the words to even understand what I was feeling, but I remember how I felt uh, when that trial was happening because of the way that, that Pamela was spoken about in the media and how it differed from the two white men who were charged in her death. And, 
And I, I found like a newspaper or, or sorry, a, a TV story from that time where, you know, they're described as from middle-class families. And one of them is a hockey star. The other is a basketball standout. And it says the victim was a, was an Aboriginal prostitute. And that's, you know, how Pamela was described in media. And I remember, you know, how upset and angry that made me feel as a, as a young Cree Indigenous woman in growing up in Saskatchewan. Um, and that was the first time I, I really thought about, like, are there, are there Native journalists? Like, are there any in these newsrooms? Like, you know, and the thir- first time I wrote something, I wrote something for our high school, like, newsletter at the time. Um, and so that was, I think, the first time I seriously talked about it. And And it's, you know, I feel like looking back, I can see, you know, it was, it was obviously like wanting to have people to have empathy and understanding for Pamela and her circumstances in her life, but also like wanting that for myself, wanting that for my family, wanting that for, you know, all of our, all of our women and, and girls and men and boys um, who are not represented well in media or who have been underrepresented or misrepresented or who, uh, you know, have been harmed by those negative stereotypes that just were prevalent for so long and still are. So you've, you know, you wrote that article in high school. I mean, there must've been something in your mind, you know, maybe I should look into journalism. How did you get from there to being a journalist? Was there an education or training part in between, or did you just do it old school where you just kind of (laughs) work the, you know, just do it? I did all of those things. I mean, I honestly, I remember like looking at the U of R journal, the U, University of Regina, which is, I grew up just outside of Regina. It has a really, um, um, really good journalism school. But I remember feeling like I, I wasn't like, that wasn't a place for me. Like I was like, I don't think I'd fit in there. I don't think I would even get in. Like, it just felt like it was kind of unattainable. So I didn't even, you know, apply really, but I did go to university. Um, and back then it was, it was called the Saskatchewan Indian Federated College before it turned into the first nations university of Canada. And that was such an incredible experience because, you know, it was a college that was for us by us. And, and, you know, there were lots of other indigenous people, first nations people in the college, um, from all over, but also just like showing the diversity in our communities. There were older students and and younger students. And and so that, you know, I think was a a great place to not only like kind of begin my education because um, it was a hard transition, like going from living on the reserve to like living in the city and having to take care of an apartment and try to focus on school. And I also was lucky that I had so much family support and I've always had so much family support. Um, but then I, I just made connections with people at that at the college and they had uh, the Indian Communication Arts program at the time, the Inca program. And I remember my cousin was in the program and they were going to Arizona. They were taking a trip, a field trip down to the NAJA conference, the Native American Journalists Association conference. And she was like, you should come. And I was like, I can't just go like how I'm not even in the program. And then I met Shannon Avison, who's the the program director there. And she was like, yeah, come on, the more the merrier. And so that was kind of my first experience. It was funny. I had a full circle moment last year because it was the first time I I went to a journalism conference and I wasn't really even in the journalism program. Um, But then I gave a keynote at, at, at the conference last year back in Phoenix. And um, so then I, you know, then I became more interested in journalism and I eventually got an internship at CBC and, and then I stayed there and and just did it for, for almost 20 years before I left. Well, and it's that 20 years where you were also blazing trails. That's whenever I talk to any Native person in journalism or media of any kind, sometimes they're the first or they're the ones who had to create departments or units or set up rules and protocols or teach their colleagues. And I just think in addition to the work that you're doing, Um, and trying to represent communities, you also have this like educational component. So can you talk a little bit about your time at CBC? Because I know one of the things you did in in fact was set up this indigenous unit, which was just so exciting and all the people in it were awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, that was that was, I think, 13 years into my time at CBC that there was finally like the 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 support to create a space like that. But for most of my career, honestly, you know, um, there was very little interest in hearing stories from our communities and in hearing um, from indigenous people in general. Like, you know, I think that I think I always I, I talk about this. My first experience as an intern was Chase producing for the morning show on the East Coast. And I remember um, I had booked the chief of, I think it was the Indian Brook First Nation at the time to come on the show to talk about the fisheries dispute that was was uh, happening in like 2000 on the East Coast. I'm sure you you remember as well. Um, and and it was a Friday and I had booked him to come on on the Monday morning. And it was an early morning show because um, it was a morning show. And I remember my producer at the time, like, you know, I was also very green and new. And and so she was grilling me about all the details and like, did you let him know where to go? And you reminded him about the time. And I was like, yes, yes. And then she said, because you know, those Indians, they'll go out drinking all weekend and they won't show up on a Monday morning. And I, I just, again, I, I remember the feeling I had. I just remember like the feeling of like embarrassment and just anger and just feeling like, I remember looking around because I was like, it'll be my word against hers. And did anyone else pay, pay attention? Was anyone else listening? And nobody it was a busy newsroom. Nobody was listening to us. And and I feel like like that's such an illustrative story, obviously, like experience of or like an illustrative example of the experience that that I had for many years in journalism and that I was often the only indigenous person in these mostly white spaces um, and with these the, the attitudes that were prevalent everywhere in Canadian society when it comes to Indigenous people. And so for a long time, it was really just trying to, to like survive in that kind of an environment, let alone like, you know, actually make a difference or be able to create space. Like it, that, that to me just felt like I couldn't even, again, couldn't even dream it really, you know, it was really just about trying to, um, you know, survive in the in that environment and and it really like it took a long time to change you know it took a long time for there to be a recognition that oh ind indigenous stories matter and indigenous people um should be telling these stories you know i think that um it's really frustrating to look back and think about like how I think also like my experiences, my lived experiences, I think actually make my work better. I think they mm -hmm. actually inform my work in a way that is actually really helpful as a journalist and storyteller. But for a long time, it, I feel like those experiences were almost weaponized against indigenous journalists. Like we, they, you know, we were accused of bias or being advocates over, over journalists and, and that's something I think that I was really sensitive to. But eventually, you know, there there was, I think, a lot of things happening. Uh, you know, um, the, the the biggest thing that I remember in my career was the, the Eighth Fire documentary series, because that was the first time in my life where I was working on a series that was dedicated to us, that it was like meant to represent Indigenous people from across the country. Um, in this four-part documentary series. And that was the first time in my career that that much time and attention and resources had been given to hearing from us uh, about our side of this kind of shared history. And I remember like the first, the night the first episode aired, like sitting um, on my couch in Toronto and hearing like older native women with accents on TV on prime time and just wishing that my grand my grandma had been alive to see that you know that it that it you know could have been or should have been her you know that that was there as well and I still you know I still get really emotional thinking about that night in particular because it felt like um you know the series was called eighth fire but it really felt like like especially because it was the first time I was live tweeting with my BlackBerry um, and I had my laptop and I remember Wob was in Winnipeg and he was doing the same and we had a social media producer who was and we were like 
had the hashtag eighth fire CBC and, and it really felt like all these little fires were being lit all over the place because so many people, it was one of the first times uh, that I had experienced at least that we came together online in this way, indigenous people like across the country when you know how incredibly diverse we are came together and, and we're talking about this thing. And I remember I had been working on it for months and I've been talking to my family about it for a long time, but it was the next day they were like, Oh, that's what you're working on. Like, cause yeah. they had seen it on their Facebook as well. And, and then, and then obviously like that winter was idle no more. And then, then also like the work of the TRC was, was ongoing. And, and I really felt like all of these things kind of like just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. And finally there was a, a shift, like a space an opening for us to kind of get in there. And, and, and then we had proof. And then once, you know, once digital media came in, we could actually like, point to metrics we could say this is how many times like this story was read and shared on social media this is how many times uh you know people have liked something that we posted and that i think was the biggest game changer and there's just so much wrapped up in all of that i I remember how excited i was for the eighth fire and i was shocked that i was being included in it and i was like wait i'm maybe (laughs) A, a less even keel kind of voice. I'm more on the radical side. They're interviewing me and they're interviewing people on reserve, off reserve, north, south, people from all yeah. different first nations, older people, younger people. It's like, this is literally uh, a small snippet of who yeah. we are. And I had the same reaction as you when I could actually hear like our voices from an auntie on the res or something. It was like, Wow. And to me, it just, it was more than just hiring a native person to do a native story. It was how native people cover a story, how they have relationships with the people that they're talking to, how we're portrayed, like all of those things seem to be wrapped up in that one moment in, in eighth fire. And then of course, once I don't know more, like you said, that I don't more just blew up yeah. Media in so many ways. It was something media had never experienced. You got to hear from people who would never otherwise be in the media. You know, they were constantly looking for a leader. Who's responsible for this? And what's the core issue? And it was different for everybody all across the country. And I just thought, that's going to have to change media. You know, that media started reaching out and asking for advice behind the scenes instead of trying to do it on the fly. And I thought, boy, I hope this means there's going to be more Connie Walkers and Wob Gnu and, you know, Duncan McHughes and everybody else in media and covering us in a much better way. They still have some ways to go, <laughs> some media outlets, <laughs> but it's just so exciting that you were a part of that. So is that kind of what led into having an Indigenous unit? Yeah, basically, um, after after Eighth Fire, like it, it was, it was such a success in terms of the the social media and the online part of Eighth Fire. Like, it, I, I can't remember, um, like how how I just remember we were all so impressed with like like how engaged our audience was on social media. And so then I pitched and I remember it was right before I went on maternity leave. um, I pitched the creation of, of like a web space, like a CBC Aboriginal, there was already a CBC Aboriginal space, but I, I pitched that we change it and adapt it to include like indigenous news um, on TV, radio and online across the country and just kind of be a central hub for that. And they, and they agreed um, and then when I came back from Matt leave in 2013, um, we started it. And at the beginning, I was the only full-time pr- reporter and there was a senior producer in Winnipeg and we were like the only resources <laughs> dedicated to that unit, but we were allowed to use like an indigenous reporter one day a month, I think it was. So we had like Duncan for a day and Wob for a day <laughs> and uh, Jillian Taylor for a day and Merelda Fiddler and um, Angela Starrett. And, and so it was like, and, and I really feel like it was also an opportunity for us to connect as Indigenous journalists within the CBC, because obviously CBC has been like, you know, such a huge, uh, like, 
an important space for indigenous people to tell stories from our communities. But I think it was also this opportunity for us to kind of connect and then begin to like leverage our power within the organization to advocate and to, to, to advocate for more stories. And because Eighth Fire was great in that it was this four part documentary, but it really should have been 16 parts. It should be an ongoing series that's still on the air right now. Like the, the fact that we were supposed to like reflect First Nations Inuit and Métis life in English and in French, um, you know, in four episodes was obviously like this hugely ambitious task, but it really, really was like an incredible moment. And then, I, and then again, like I said, once we had the metrics, because I feel like before that, like think of a newsroom and think of who's making the decisions. Think of who's deciding like what's important today on the national, what's important today on our cbc.ca homepage and thinking about what, what's informing their decisions about what's what's important or not important. And I think before that, we just had like people who, you know, thought Canadians didn't care that Canadians are interested in our stories, you know, you know, or that they're not important and finally, we actually had metrics to prove, actually, that's incorrect. That's like, that's not true. And and then things snowballed from there. And when I left the CBC, there were 10 reporters in the Indigenous wow. unit. And it was 10 reporters across the country, all dedicated to telling our stories uh, from our communities. And, and that kind of shift in that short period of time was just like amazing to be a part of, but also, you know, it feels like it's not enough. Like we just have to, we have to keep going. Like we have to keep going and, and doing more. And it's so funny because us on the outside, we always wanted to give priority to anyone in the native unit. It's like, oh, you know, four people might be calling you for an interview and it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going with the native unit. I'm talking yeah, to Leonard or I'm talking to someone else because yeah. it's like our people, we know we're not going to be portrayed bad. We know you're going to ask the right questions, the things that matter. You'll give us a little bit more time for context. So it's not like a 20 second speech. It was just, it really changed everything. And then I was like, okay, now when is every other station, radio, TV, or otherwise going to have their own native unit? Mm. And I was like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what's with that. But I think your point about seeing that people want to know about us, want to hear about us, that whether it's like news and reporting or entertainment, like I think about the movie yeah. Prey, it is my favorite movie of all time. The superstar, the central character is a young native woman who is kick-ass. I mean, I haven't seen it. <laughs> I feel like I should have seen it, but I'm, I also feel like I don't, I, it seems like it might be a bit of a scary movie. Is it scary? <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're into Predator, like if you're super nerdy and you like the Predator Alien series, you know, there's a okay, bit I've never of seen those, dogs. but yeah, but <laughs> I mean, but but I mean, like, I think, like, think about Reservation Dogs, for example. Like, I just, yeah. I mean, I love that series so much, it's incredible. And I feel like, even like, at like when that came out, I remember feeling like we can do this, <laughs> this is like because it really felt like it was you know, or maybe it, it hit a nerve in me because I felt like even with the podcast, when I finally, um, you know, decided that, okay, this was like for a journalist, like one of the best mediums to help tell our stories was, was podcasting and specifically serialized investigative podcasting, because you can follow a single story uh, over multiple episodes and really become immersed in worlds that aren't very well represented generally in mainstream media. And you can create space for empathy so that people can get to know and care about our communities and our families. Mm -hmm. And especially obviously like Alberta and Cleo and Jermaine. Um, but I, when I saw reservation dogs and it was like, it, it was like created really for us in a way that I feel like our podcast is, I, I, that's my goal. I want it to be for us. Absolutely. But I also like feel, felt like it also has to be for the non-Indigenous yeah. um, audience as well. Like this is like hopefully an education, hopefully an opportunity mm -hmm. for connection and understanding. Um, but it also felt like it, that was not optional with reservation talks. I'm like, Oh my God, it's amazing. They're just, they're just doing it They're And yeah. it's an incredible time. You're right. And, and I think about that. So res dogs, all the insider jokes and like the sayings and stuff, yeah. or that they wear t-shirts or beadwork that us in the community are making. It's just like, yes, yes, we need the insider stuff. But then when I think about your podcast, uh, Missing and Murder, 
who killed Alberta Williams. Yeah. I the first time I I even heard it, I thought, you know what? This isn't just for us because we we know our stories, we know the history, but it felt like not only was it, you know, in this true crime genre of people who really like, you know, there's an entertainment factor, I guess, to different kinds of podcasts, but it was, it seemed educational without being purposely educational. So you weren't like an academic saying this and this and this and this, it was almost like educational subversively. You're going to learn stuff by your interest in this. And it was the same for finding Cleo. Oh my goodness. I don't know how many times I heard from people saying, Hey, do you know that podcast finding Cleo? I learned so much. What made you think to make those two, you know, those two seasons of Missing and Murdered? Well, we had we had been doing like after we created CBC Aboriginal, we started obviously wanting to like focus on Indigenous issues in news. And, and I was a news reporter um, and we started reporting on the issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls. And the first thing we created was a database of unsolved cases in Canada of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And what was in Incredible about that was again like that we were supported to to like help raise awareness about this like critically important issue for so many people in our communities, but also that we were like giving families a space to help like help tell their stories because I feel like so many people like this has been an ongoing issue for decades. Um, And so many families have felt alone, felt like they had nowhere to turn, have felt like frustrations, especially in unsolved cases with law enforcement and the criminal justice system. And this was like this database that we created was an opportunity for them to like to share their experiences. And we wanted to make sure that we were focusing not only on the violence, but also on on the, the their lives, you know, like it was an opportunity for family members to share like memories and favorite anecdotes. And I think creating that space, like for, for me was, was really like, it's just transformative in terms of like recognizing that that's what I wanted to be doing, that I wanted to be helping to raise awareness, but also um, helping to amplify voices from our community and so through the creation of this database, um, we asked people to send us tips, you know, and information. And so the first um, one of, we got a message uh, um, from somebody who had information about Alberta Williams case. And that was kind of the beginning of it, but it was originally meant to be a two minute news story. Like already at that point, I think we had reported on obviously the creation of the database. And then we had done kind of more in-depth reporting on, uh, Leah Anderson, who was a, a young woman from God's Lake Narrows in Manitoba, who was killed in her community. And we had done reporting on Amber Tuckero, who um, went missing from Edmonton, Alberta. We had also, um, we, we had done a few a few other stories. And I, I remember at that point also hearing from somebody in management, like, how many more can you do? You know, you know, you've done a few, like how many more can you do? And I remember thinking like, this is just the beginning. Like, this is like, this is like, we're creating this tiny little space for us to get through. And then when we, when we did Alberta Williams, we were like, okay, you can do it. It's a two minute news story, but like come back right away and put it together. And when we went out there and we just started interviewing people and talking to people and uncovering more and more information and learning more about this, you know, Alberta was was killed in 1989 and her case is still unsolved. And there were people that we were talking to who had information who had never been interviewed by journalists, who had never been interviewed by police even. And, um, and I, you know, I came we came back, Marnie, Luke, and I, my producer, and pitched it as a podcast. We thought, you know, we we need more time and space. There's too much to tell in a single story. Um, but I was very much focused then, honestly, on the mystery. Like, I feel like the investigative part of our podcast is actually something that I really rely on as well as, like, it being a storytelling device. Mm-hmm. But I remember that was also the year we were reporting that was the year that Colton Bushy was killed in Saskatchewan. And I obviously am from Saskatchewan, and that was such a uh, 
just a devastating time for so many people. And I remember there were indigenous journalists in Saskatchewan who wanted to, to help other journalists in the province do a better job of covering our stories because there was so much problematic coverage uh, following Colton's death. And so Mervyn Brass um, and Betty Ann Adam uh, with their colleague, Jason Warwick, um, organized this conference called Reconciliation in the Media. And I remember it was in October of that year and I was like writing the Alberta Williams podcast and we were launching in only a few weeks. And I was like, I don't really have time to fly to Saskatchewan to like be at this conference, but I really wanted to be there. And so I went and I was on a panel, but honestly, like it was the most incredible day um, because they started because it's them and because of they understand and know this history and we're wanting to educate everyone, including myself. This with um, Eugene Arcan, who's a residential school survivor from St. Michael's. And I remember like him pulling out this like laminated photo of himself with other um, classmates, like some of his friends, other children at, at St. Michael's and talking about, you know, his experience, his as a his lived experience as a survivor of residential schools. And then we had some panels. And then at lunchtime, uh, Marie Wilson uh, one of the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did the keynote. And she's also a former journalist. And I felt like I was sitting right in the front row, I remember, or like in one of the um, tables close to the mic. And I felt like really she was giving us shit. She was like, you guys need to do a better job. This is your actual job as journalists is to connect the dots. And it's your responsibility. And she said something that stuck with me and I use it all the time. She said, um, that it's our job as journalists to provide the context. And if we can't explain it in this story, explain it in the follow-up. And she asked a question, when did this story actually begin? And at the time I was like knee or neck deep in the Alberta Williams uh, story and really like focused on the details of, of her case. And, and then I thought about it with Alberta. I was like, when did Alberta's story begin? Like it wasn't obviously with her her murder in 1989. It wasn't even like what happened the weeks and months before that, or even with her birth, that she was connected to a bigger story about like colonization and about our lives. And and she, you know, she asked that question at a time that really made me reflect on like the opportunity we had with the podcast and to that to we should include that history. Mm-hmm. It was important for us to include that history. And in a way that was not only education, you know, in a way that was like mm-hmm. relevant to this story and relevant to the understanding of this story. And that, and that was really kind of changed the scope of, of podcasting and the way that we, we approach this. And then, that was like you said, the number one feedback once it came out was that people people reached out and they and they were like people who were social workers or healthcare workers, people who work with indigenous people every day in some capacity, people who said, I thought I knew about residential schools or I thought I understood about residential schools, but like the listening to the podcast and being engaged in that way and creating space for people to empathize and have an understanding of Alberta's lived experience or Claudia's lived experience uh, or mine, like is, was so important for, for them mm-hmm. to understand our families and our communities. And, and that, that, you know, that, that also was a light bulb moment for me. You know, the wheels are turning. You're being influenced by other people. You have these two amazing seasons of missing and murdered and everybody is loving it. And I feel like at that, at that time, you must've just been in the groove because then we come to, you know, stolen from mm-hmm. Gimlet Media and Spotify Studios. So stolen, you're no longer at CBC. You're no mm-hmm. longer working on all these other things. But now you you must have had it in your mind, okay, there are still so many more stories to tell because this is, you know, the podcast that is the Pulitzer Prize winner. It's the Peabody Award winner and a whole bunch of other winners. What what inspired you to do Stolen? Was it just to kind of keep telling our stories? Yeah, you know, I think I think that like um when I was still at CBC, um after finding Cleo, um, I started 
really kind of earnestly wanting to learn about PTSD and and what it meant to be trauma informed in journalism. Because, you know, I I felt like up until that point, like I had so much uh, concern for families and for people who we were interviewing. And I thought, you know, if, if I'm there asking them about their loved one who's missing or who's been murdered, like you're asking them about the worst thing that has ever happened to them. And I, and I felt like as somebody who also experienced uh, trauma and, and PTSD, that, that that's like, those are things that you just work so hard to avoid. Like as a, as a trauma survivor, you just like, you're like, you'll do anything to, to avoid those things. And I remember like really grappling with the guilt that I felt about bringing those things up for family members, but also the tension around like these stories are so important. And, and also, you know, families want to share their stories and, and finding Cleo to me honestly was like such an educational experience for me in terms of doing this work because Cleo's siblings, Johnny and Crystal, uh, she goes by Crystal now, but, um, and the podcast is Christine, like the, 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 the way that, um, they were able to have agency over their own story in that it was their search for their sister. Um, and that at one point, like we really kind of, again, like, I feel like just trying to shift things in a way that is more aligned with like my own values and my own, my own judgment. But, um, it was really kind of incredible to watch them take control and to see what a positive experience it was for them. And then it really inspired me to learn more about like, you know, using the power of storytelling to help um, heal from trauma and, and PTSD. And it was around that time I attended um, a fellowship at Columbia university at the dart center for trauma and journalism. And it was a week long intensive thing um, called the Ockberg Fellowship and really learning about the science of trauma, but then also learning about, um, how, you know, how to heal from trauma and the latest like research on, on, on PTSD. And, and I really, you know, one of the treatments that I learned about was this, was the treatment called exposure therapy. And the idea is that, you know, as a trauma, as somebody who's experienced trauma, um, you and and who has PTSD, you are you spend so much time and energy really trying to avoid thinking about that traumatic experience, and that that is also like such a it costs so much in terms of your energy and your space and your um, your time, and that that one of the ways to to manage um, trauma is to actually expose it and to shine a spotlight on it and to revisit it over and over and over again, and that's actually a form of therapy. Um, and, and it made me think about like finding Cleo and it made me think about the other stories that I have been telling and that there is power in sharing your own story. There's power if you have agency and if you're treated with respect and if you are, are in a position where you have control, um, that that can actually be a powerful healing thing. And I feel like just looking back as we're doing today, which is kind of incredible, just like, I feel like there were all these little lessons along the way to get to that point. Um, and so when I, when, when the discovery was made in Kamloops, I'm sure you remember that time as well, like May of 2021. I remember like it was, it was such a triggering experience, even for me. And I didn't go to a residential school, but just like, and I, and I, I'm so curious what you think about this, because I remember like part of it was, was that, the response, which was for the first time people stopped and, and listened and understood that this actually happened, um, was, was really angering for me. Like I was so upset about it because I was like, this has been happening and now you're paying attention. Like I was glad people were paying attention. Yes. But I also was so frustrated and upset by it. I was like, um, it was just really, really kind of a difficult experience. But one of the things that I noticed around the time was that 
then it seemed like survivors finally had space to share their stories. Like people for the first time in my own family who had never like mentioned anything about going to a residential school were writing Facebook posts about it. We're saying, I went to this school. I like, I survived this. And, and I remember it was like just such a raw time. And it was around that time. My brother shared this story on Facebook about our dad Um And it was a story about how when our dad was in the RCMP in the late 1970s, he was out on patrol one night and he pulled over a vehicle because he thought the driver had been drinking. And when he got to the window, he realized he knew the driver and that it was a priest who had abused him at residential school. And my dad beat up the priest that night on the side of the road and expected to get in trouble, but nothing happened. And it just became the story that that he told. And he never shared it with me. He shared it with my brother, Hal. And my brother, Hal, after Kamloops, shared it with on Facebook. And, and reading it was the first time I had ever, wow. like, first time I knew knew that about my dad, knew that he had, was abused at residential school, and first time I'd ever heard that story. And I felt like in that moment, like, I had answers or things were making sense a little mm-hmm. bit more, just in terms of, like, understanding more about my dad's experience and why he was the way he was, but then it raised so many more questions and it made me want to know just like, not only what my dad went through at that school, but want to better understand how that shaped the father he was to me, but also how it's shaped me in my life. Like I've obviously been reporting on residential schools for years at that point. And, and cause I consider like MMIW being directly linked to, and, and the TRC found that like this crisis of violence in our communities is directly linked to uh, residential schools and the legacies of residential schools. But I felt like I had never like connected the dots in my own life. And so it was like, it was again, like another full circle moment where it was like Marie Wilson being like, it's our job to connect the dots and, you know, witnessing Johnny and Crystal and finding Cleo, like just being such an inspiration for in terms of like how they're able to like use the power of storytelling in, in this way that, that really felt like a positive experience, which was, Mm -hmm so revelatory for me. And then just my own learning at the dart center about like, I need, I can't hide. I can't like, I can't bury it. It's like this, this painful thing that's been with me my whole life actually. And I can't turn away from it. Like this is the time to actually focus on it, to shine the biggest spotlight I can find on it and, and really try to, to uncover what I can. And I think at Gimlet, I was, I'm so lucky and that, you know, I have agency, uh, you know, I'm, I, at the time was managing editor and, and host of, of a podcast that I had created. We had assembled this team. I was being supported in ways I'd never been supported before to tell these stories. And it really felt like the right time to take on this personal story. And, and it was, it feels like everything came together because reporting, there's a difference between facts and lived experiences and the nuances and complexities of people and their trauma and what's happened before, what continues to happen, all of the people who never had voices. Like it just seems to all culminate. And so, I mean, I don't think any of us were surprised that you would win lots of awards for stolen, you know, because the first season was so great. And the second season, oh, just, I feel like each one grabs your heart in a really different way. And I still love how educational it is without seeming educational. So it's like, okay, if you don't want to learn about residential schools from a book, from a TRC, from something else, maybe through your quote unquote entertainment or your obsession with true crime that you will come to see us and understand us. And I feel like just society, like in society, there's been such a difference. And so not at all surprised um, that you won so many awards. And then when we heard the Pulitzer Awards, like, so I'm a, I'm a Twitter addict and I'm going through Twitter and I'm like, Pulitzer, Connie Walker. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm going to have to Google this because <laughs> is, is this like our Connie Walker? Not that we were surprised, but it was like, they never you know, recognize so us in such a massive, 
massive way. So I was like, yes, Pulitzer Prize. So I'm like all happy. And everybody, of course, you know, is talking about it. And I'm like, wait a second. I see another tweet. And I was like, the Peabody Award. Like, when did <laughs> know, this so happen? Surreal. What have I missed? Was this a year ago? Or like just everything just seemed to come together. How does it feel for you and all of the people's whose stories that you've told to win these awards really get this recognition? Yeah, I mean it's overwhelming. It's very overwhelming. And it's really, it's really um incredible because I think that you're right in that, like, I, I don't think I'd ever really even like imagine the possibility of, of that happening. Um, and I, I think like for me that like telling a personal story was, was difficult. Absolutely. But like I said, I felt like it, it really felt necessary and urgent in a way, but, but then I knew that like needing my family to be there along with me because my father passed away. And so it really was like his siblings who helped me understand what, what they went through at St. Michael's and the fact that they placed that trust in me has been something that, you know, I've, it's like a huge um, honor, but also a responsibility. And so like throughout the entire process, I have felt like, I want to make sure that they're okay. Like, are they feeling okay about this? Is this something that, that is, um, you know, that is still positive or beneficial or, or helpful for them. And so like on the day that the, the Pulitzers were announced, my, my auntie, my dad's sister, my auntie cookie FaceTimed me and she was so happy. And she was like, I'm so glad I told you my story. She's like, I forgot what I told you though. Like, what did I tell you? <laughs> And, and, and I was reminding her and she was like, Oh yeah. She was like, I'm so glad. And actually that's like a really, actually, like, I feel like that, that my auntie cookie is a, a really good example. Cause I was home reporting for a few weeks, um, but I didn't get to connect with her there. And then after I left, she heard that I was interviewing her siblings to, to ask about St. Michael's. And she called me and she said, I, I want to tell you my story. And I said, absolutely. Like I would, I would love to talk to you. And, and she said, but I want to do it in person. I want to wait till you're home next. And I said, okay, for sure. Like we'll, we'll talk next time I'm home. And then a few weeks after that, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Jean Chrétien was making news because he was on a French TV program talking about residential schools and talking about how as minister of Indian affairs at the time, uh, he didn't know what was happening in residential schools, but also he said something to the effect of like, I went to a boarding school, like it wasn't great. There were some not good things, but you know, it's, it was like kind of diminishing. It, it's, it felt like, and my auntie cookie heard that and she heard that on the news and she called me that day and she was so upset. She said, people need to know what happened. People need to know what we lived. Like I lived through that. She said, it was real. It was real. That happened to me. That really happened to me. And then she decided that that's when she wanted to tell me her story. And so we were on the phone for like a couple of hours that day. And we Aww. talked again another day and she shared so much with me and it's in, it's in the podcast. And she's one of the incredible voices in episode four, which is all survivors, like in their own words, mm -hmm. talking about their experiences. And so to have like, to have that call from her on the day just felt like, this is the most, like, this is the best thing, honestly. Like if yeah. my family is feeling good about this, if my family feels like, um, you know, that this yeah. is a positive experience, like that's the most important thing, honestly. I mean, obviously the awards are incredible <laughs> for people, but I, I feel like, you, you know, like that yeah. to me is, is really the, the, the biggest reward. And, and also that, that more people are, are listening now to, mm -hmm not just my family, but all of the survivors that we talked to yeah. from St. Michael's, like we interviewed 28 survivors from this one school. Um, and they, and they were so incredibly brave in the things that they shared with us. Um, and we tried, you know, to honor them with, with what they shared mm -hmm. with us. Um, and that that's being recognized and that their voices are going to be heard by more people you know, it's incredible. 
Connie, you just inspire me. I feel like we could do a whole season of Connie <laughs> Walker's story and all of the lessons learned and what we can learn from you in doing all of this because you are such an amazing person. And I just love, because I feel the same way, that no matter what the award is, it's when granny or auntie calls you up and says, oh, my, my girl, that is just so wonderful. Like that is the award. It means you did it right. You did it respectfully. You did it according to protocol. You did it gently, empathetically. And so I, I can't wait. I can't wait for season three. I can't wait for everything <laughs> else that's going to come from you. I can't wait to tell everyone I know a Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> um, and uh, I just literally want to shout it from the rooftops. I, I look up to you so much, Connie, because oh, you're thank you, so ethical and empathetic and honest and I think that's that's the most important and like I said I could talk to you for hours and hours but I know you probably have a whole bunch of paparazzi lined up behind me <laughs> wanting to talk to the Pulitzer Prize winner so more recycling so much. <laughs> yeah I have more recycling to do today <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for all you do and thank you to the listeners for listening please share this far and wide and of course listen to every podcast Connie has ever created and celebrate her Pulitzer with her and do more to listen to Indigenous voices until next time keep living a warrior life if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting my podcast. Your donations help me keep the Warrior Life podcast open access to everyone and free from those annoying ads. And it's super simple. Just click on the link below to sign up for a Patreon monthly or yearly subscription or click the links for the Buy Me A Coffee app or the Kofi app to make one-time contributions. And if you belong to an awesome community group, business, or organization that's committed to Indigenous reconciliation, consider sponsoring an episode or two, or as many as you like. Thank you for helping me lift the voices of Indigenous warriors doing phenomenal things to help make our world a better place. Oh wait, just before you go, even though this is the last episode of the Warrior Life podcast for this season, so we can all head out on the powwow trail, we'll be starting back up again in the fall with all new episodes. But don't worry, I have your summer covered. I wanted to let you know about a new podcast I'm producing called Criminals on Patrol. One new episode will be released every two weeks during the summer. It's available on all the usual podcast apps or you can check out the website www.criminalsonpatrol.com where you can find extra information and bonus content. So before I say goodbye for the summer, check out the trailer for Criminals on Patrol. We begin tonight with an appeal from the RCMP. They have arrested a former Mountie in Calgary, charged him with sexual assault against eight young boys and fear there may be more victims. A former RCMP officer is behind bars tonight starting a lengthy prison sentence. Three months after being found guilty of stealing 10 kilograms of cocaine from an RCMP evidence locker, a Supreme Court judge has formally sentenced Craig Burnett. Charges of manslaughter against two officers and obstruction of justice against three others who are accused of telling witnesses to delete any cell phone video. Manslaughter, reckless discharge of a firearm, and dangerous driving causing bodily harm are just some of the charges laid against an RCMP officer. Murders, sexual assaults, drug deals, child pornography, human trafficking, and falsifying evidence. You might think I'm talking about organized crime or street gangs, but these offenders are police officers who hide behind the thin blue line of secrecy. Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Palmiter, the creator and host of Criminals on Patrol, which is produced by Warrior Life Studios. This podcast shines a light on the widespread criminality, corruption and cover-ups in policing by investigating one specific police force over the course of a season. In season one, we'll take a closer look at the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Canada's iconic National Police Force, celebrating its 150th birthday. So if you care about public safety and police accountability, make sure to subscribe to Criminals on Patrol and check out our website for bonus content. 
Links are in the description box below.